Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to theleapcast.com right now to subscribe. Welcome, everybody, back to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James, where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. Today, I'm excited for our guest today, Dr. Selwyn Rogers, who introduced to me, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to just have this conversation. Dr. Rogers, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Dr. James, for having me. So, you know, what we like to do on on LeapCast is something called Leap Story, where we just want to kind of go to the early parts of your journey. Maybe that might be growing up. Maybe that might be, you know, in your household or wherever you started off. I I don't know what city that might be. But if you don't mind, let's go to those early days and kind of tell us about your experiences and your journey. Thank you so much, Dr. James. You know, I'd like to say that I'm a product of a combination of opportunity, chance, and hard work. My origin story starts back on the island of St. Thomas, uh, nice. specifically Charlotte Mali. I was born um, 56 years ago. And back then, I, as a son of immigrant parents, my mom is from the island of Antigua, my dad's from the Island of Anguilla, two A's, and I was born on, in the U.S. Virgin Islands as a U.S. citizen and had an incredible journey defined by, I think, two things. The audacity of ignorance, didn't know mm-hmm. what I didn't know, and the power of mentorship and relationships. So with respect to the audacity of ignorance, I grew up, went to public schools all the way through on the island of St. Croix, neighboring island, also U.S. Virgin Islands. President Biden was just on St. Croix for his respite, his vacation. And on that island, I went to public school all the way through, and I was a good student. Actually, I was a great student, but there were no AP classes. There was no (laughs) advanced study. It was just bread and butter public school education. And while there, I had the audacity of ignorance because my mom, who always valued education, her mantra was, I go to work. Your work is school. And she always surrounded us with books. And we had Encyclopedia Britannica. The audience may not know what that is, except if you're over the age of 30, but because you're all Wikipedia folks. But, you know, those who are a little older knows what an encyclopedia is. And on the, the volume M, and M was one of the bigger volumes. You know, had a lot of pages. Z, not so many pages. Y, not so many pages. M was a good-sized volume. But even M, when you got the medicine, there were a limited number of pages. And in that encyclopedia, I remember it vividly. Now, this is going back 45, almost Mm -hmm. 50 years. There was medical school listed. And there were only two listed, Johns Hopkins and Harvard Medical School. And I said to myself, audacity of ignorance. If I'm going to go into medicine, I mm-hmm. guess I need to go to college. So I yeah. guess I will apply to Johns Hopkins and Harvard. And I was accepted to both. And that's when the story gets really interesting. I went off to Harvard College, Harvard Medical School, and my career has been defined 
by the power of mentorship and the power of relationships. And oh, and before you go into the power of relationships, I want to kind of come back to what you're saying. One, you know, I already got much respect for you as a product of some island people. You know, my both my parents from Jamaica. So shout out to all the island people. Shout out to all the. That's right. Yeah, respect, right, to all of them, and you know, and this value of education and the culture that you grew up in, right? Even right on the the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, which is one of the places I, I love as well. My family moved from Jamaica to the U.S. Sounds like you know your family was there, but it was this thought of like we believe in education. We're going to support you in the best way we can. We're going to get you some Br- Encyclopedia Britannica, which I do remember. And I remember the salespeople who used to come around trying to sell them at <laughs> this thought of like education and the thought of like, hey, well, if I see Hopkins and I see Harvard, that must be the places to go. And I love the thought of like, well, OK, that's what I'm going to do. And you just did it. So the, there's this way that it sounds like at least early you could think of something and say that you want to do it and then follow through and actually do it which I think is just incredible that you were doing that at such a young age. That's a great comment. And thank you, Dr. James. I will say that the reason why I coined that the audacity of ignorance is I didn't know any different. Never, you know, Charles Drew is famous for saying excellence would transcend the man-made barriers and not an exact quote, but that's a theme, right? If you are excellent, and that's true, be it Jackie Robinson, that's true, be it Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that's true, be it Muhammad Ali. If you're excellent, artificial barriers are transcended every time. And I think of today, when we have all of the culture wars and polarization about that commitment to excellence, how that can be a way forward, however you want to be excellent. Art, music, education, knowledge transfer, IT, you name it. But you got to make that commitment to excellence. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And and the thought of like, you know, that by being excellent and the pursuit of excellence, barriers come down or it's easier to push through those barriers. Right. Because and I think you're being I love that you're you're being honest is that it's not saying that because you're excellent, there's no barriers. (laughs) They're still there. There's still obstacles. There's still injustice. There's still all this stuff. But excellence can be, and I'm going to use this word, sometimes a weapon against those barriers. Truth. So you apply to Hopkins and Harvard. You decide, you get into both. Congrats. On my journey, one of the schools I applied to was Hopkins. I actually did a summer program there before before I finished high school. And I decided not to go there for college. And it sounds like, so you made the decision to go over Harvard. How did you make that decision and why Harvard at that point? I purposely was trying to fast forward because I don't know where you're going with your interview. So thank you for the fact that you gave me no preparation. (laughs) Um, But since you asked the question, accepted to Harvard and Johns Hopkins and my mom, my parents were divorced uh, early when, when my parents were, when I was three, when my sister was two. And my mom, you know, worked for the federal government on St. Croix, but modest means that we were surrounded by an extended family that lifted us up. You know, I, I quote my grandmother, now passed all the time, a quote that I use when appropriate. He 
she who does not hear will feel. <laughs> yeah. The power of experience. Because if I'm telling you, don't do that, and you yeah. do it anyway, then you will feel the yeah. consequences. That's basically the message. Having said that, surrounded by all this stuff, the idea going to Harvard College from St. Croix Central High School, which had never been done before, tuition at Harvard at that time was $13,000. Even with financial aid, it was not within reach. Johns Hopkins said, we'll give you a free ride, young man. And it was a no-brainer where I went to college my first year. But again, the audacity of ignorance. I'm in Hopkins. I am doing well. Something in me said, you know, this is not exactly what I had anticipated for college. So my audacity, I call up Dean Fitzsimmons, who just retired as a dean of admissions at Harvard College. I said, Dean, I think I may have made a mistake. And the dean said, well, if you're in good standing and you remain in good standing, since we admitted you the first time, nice. we'll have a spot for you as a sophomore. That's how I ended up at Harvard College. And uh, to your other point, a lot of this, all of this is really about your journey. And we're going to get to where you are now. But I, what I value and I think what the audience has always valued is your journey, all the things that have shaped you as a person, as a professional, and these moments, right? The moment that you're like, I'm at Hopkins, I'm there for free, and I get it. Like, I went to school on a presidential scholarship, and it was free, books included. And without that, I don't know if I would have been able to go to college or to be able to afford it. I had some options similarly that was also free. But once again, if it wasn't free, I don't know what would have been the option. So Right. You took that road. I think you, but it sounds like you once again trusted, as some folks might say, you trusted your instincts, you trusted your gut, and that this is good, but not where I, I need to be. Do you know how you developed that? Like, were you always that, like growing up as a young boy, someone who just trusted your instincts? Dr. James, I would say that the answer probably to that question is honestly. I don't know. If I lay on a couch and go through some deep psychoanalysts, <laughs> I probably would say early on, I always bet on black, meaning I always bet on me. Nice. And so when I got to Forks in the Road, again, neither of my parents graduated from college. I was making this up. Same here. I was making it up right from scratch. I was making this up. Going out to college, I made that up. Figuring out where I was going to apply, I made it up. Uh, getting through SATs, made that up. I mean, I just made it all up. And so, mm -hmm. which is why, again, I framed the first part of my journey as the audacity of ignorance, because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just following a path that felt right, whatever felt right meant, without any guarantee that when I made a leap, that I was going to land on my feet, except for a belief in myself and a deep abiding faith that I'm here for a reason. Yeah. No, I love that. And, you know, once again, I have some similarities where, you know, my parents didn't really have education past, like maybe it's my mom, this eighth grade. And so homework, <laughs> I like your phrase. I made it up <laughs> what I want to do. I made it up. They were there. They were supportive. 
they gave me the foundation in so many things, including love, support, faith. But when it comes to it came to doing homework, <laughs> that was all on me. So I appreciate, you know, what you're saying, right? The start of like, look, I'm gonna trust what I have inside me. I'm gonna bet on me. I'm gonna bet on black and I'm gonna move forward. You go to Harvard and sound like you were also starting to say, like, this is also where mentorship starts to come in for you. Yes, sir. Uh, so, so when I went to Harvard, even though I had this inkling about being a doctor, having no one in my family and no real exposure to uh, the field of medicine, I chose a major in biology. But one of the things at Harvard College, being a liberal arts education, is that they make you do a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want to do. They make you do it. So economics and literature and and Icelandic literature. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, but every time I would expose myself to something new, I said, this is some good stuff. Wow. And I rediscovered that I really love learning. <laughs> I knew that always. But I thought I only loved learning about the things that I loved, not to realize that you can love just about everything if you have a growth mindset. Now, obviously, I wasn't talking about growth mindset as an 18-year-old boy, but that's really what I was doing. I was exploring this new world, this incredible open world, and reimagining the world both as it was, as it is, and as it could be. And this is a point when mentorship rears its head. I'd always had great mentors. I mentioned grandma, my mom, pastor. I mean, I was always surrounded by, as you said, love, right? I always felt the love, if you will. I'll give you a great story, right? So I was a kid in high school that the weed-smoking dude would stop in the hallway and say, hey, let me see your report card. I've never seen straight A's in every report card, right? I was that dude. And, <laughs> and I he knew who to ask, though. That's the point. <laughs> so I wasn't the big man on campus, but I wasn't the big man on campus because everyone, mm-hmm. quote, unquote, knew who Stellan Rogers was. Yeah. I don't say that with hubris. I just say that with, it all struck me as weird. Here's a dude skipping class, doing whatever he's doing, having a good old time, but he wanted to see what excellence looks like. Yeah. That's back to the how do you inspire people? Yeah. Mentorship. So I'm in organic chemistry at Harvard College. And as anyone and in the or go anywhere is yeah, I was gonna say anyone who has any touch around what going to medical school could look like, organic chemistry is important if you're gonna become an organic chemist, but it often is used for better or for worse as a requirement to go to medical school. What's interesting that that requirement to go to medical school, which is chemistry and it's organic, carbon-based, and it's conceptual and it's shapes. And the only time I've used organic chemistry in as a doctor is when I made an analogy around hymerism, around S and L shapes of a molecule, but it was an analogy. It was not directly related to taking care of human lives. Having said that, it was a tough course, but I had an exceptional both organic chemistry teacher 
And another course that's not a requirement, that's somewhat related, which was biochemistry. So my biochemistry and organic chemistry professor, Guido Guidotti, I so loved his teaching and his style that I said to Guido, Professor Guido Guidotti, who you can tell Italian, mm-hmm. very different from Selwyn Rogers, Caribbean, mm-hmm. American, black, male, skinny, 150, mm-hmm. 6'3", <laughs> dripping wet. I'm a little heavier now. I said to him, may I please work in your lab? Audacity of ignorance. I didn't know if he was going to say yes or no or get yeah. the hell out of here. Yeah. He said, sure. Wow. All of a sudden, this small town boy from St. Croix is in a lab of biochemistry purifying the sodium-potassium HPase molecule, learning the scientific method, charting a course for his senior's thesis and imagining a brand new world that I did not know existed. Yeah. It was blind to me, but now no longer blind. Science, discovery, innovation. I love this stuff. This is great. Creating new knowledge. Wow. I and- love how I love how you're part, you know, as you're sharing, you know, this thought of loving the the experience of learning right and that and that that was fostered probably fostered at home with your parents and you know and something that was just part of you and what really sticks out you know as you were talking about professor guido is the thought of you were willing to ask you know sometimes we can be in place and we can be overwhelmed we can be intimidated we can feel like this person is different than me this person comes from a different background than me this person doesn't look like me, any of those things. And we can be filled with the thoughts of like, I can't ask because of that. I can't pursue it. And consistently, you know, you're saying this, right? The audacity of ignorance, right? That allowed you like, hey, I don't know any better. But also I think it's bravery and courage to say like, well, you know, this is what I want and I'm going to see if I can have it. And it happened, right? Even in a place where you're like, I wouldn't have mapped out that I would have been in this organic chemistry lab now. <laughs> On my end, yeah, that was where after organic chemistry, I think I tapped out. I think it was the, <laughs> it was those things, right? As you said, it's a process. And I was like, okay, this process is probably not for me. But I love that you were able and willing to say, I want to just ask a question. Do you think that that's something that you still do or continue to do? Just be willing to ask and to try? Yeah, it's a great question, Dr. James. I'm going to tell you that uh, one of the things that, you know, you probably, that the audience probably can surmise, I do a lot of mentoring of others. I get a lot of satisfaction out of shaping, molding, not telling people what to do, right. but listening and partnering and inspiring and controlling and kicking people in the rear end when they need it, <laughs> if they're willing to take it because I'm not an abusive dude, because if you want to get better and you're willing to engage with me, great. If you don't want to get better, don't waste my time. Having said that, I early on was not afraid of failure. You know, Mm. that's one of the things that actually is interesting because I had a lot of success in my little bubble, but I wasn't okay staying in my bubble. Yeah. Success. Because Time and time again, I'm sorry for the sirens in the back. I'm at the hospital. Don't even hear it. It's all good. Um, when I was 
my best, it was always when I was being stretched, when I was not certain of the outcome, and when I could fail. And in fact, I always learned the most after failure. Ooh, that is so hard. I mean, like, and I fully know and agree with what you're saying. And that is often the place that I think many of us struggle with, right? We love comfort or familiarity or what is known. The unknown is so scary, provides so much anxiety and stretches us, which sometimes is painful, <laughs> right? And, but I love that what you're saying, because yes, it sometimes can produce the most growth, uh, the most perspective if we allow ourselves to do it. And it sounds like you got comfortable with the uncomfortable, that you were willing to try and do those things, and then it expanded you. So share more around this thought of the path with mentorship. So you're there, you're in the lab, senior thesis, Harvard College. What happens after that point? So doing the science, biochemistry, scientific method discovery stuff, reinforced that I really wanted a career where I was going to help people but I also wanted to innovate. I wanted to create and add new knowledge. And that became something that was important to me. You know, there's the, nothing wrong with that, right? There is the, yeah. I apply, I do, and I do. But for example, like your children, they're an extension of you. Mm -hmm. It's something that you produce. And that you then invest in. Being a parent is not having kids. It's investing all of you in your yeah. children or your child. In that context, that is the secret sauce of mm -hmm. what parenting is. It's what you infuse into your offspring that helps them become their best self. That's what I think I yeah. define parenting as. Mentorship is kind of along the same thing. And I like the fact that lots of people saw things in me that I did not see myself. Nice. And when they saw things in me, I wasn't afraid to embrace them. I often said, oh, they're seeing something that I don't <laughs> see. Excelsior, move forward. Don't run away. Because most people, when they're willing to invest in you, that says a lot. That's a statement. They're reaching out to you. And you have a choice. You can always walk away. But if someone puts their hand out to help you and they're not trying to hurt you, shame on you for not seeing where it goes. Now, you could always get off the train. You can always say, hey, not for me. <laughs> or you are a tormentor, not a mentor. But that's up to you to figure out. And along the way, be it examples, specific concrete. So. How do I choose Harvard Medical School? I choose Harvard Medical School because I go through a similar experience once again. Harvard Medical School, pretty expensive school. Yes, there's financial aid. Again, I'm not independently wealthy, nor are my folks. And I applied, I don't remember, well, I was going to be humble, but I applied to nine schools and I got into nine go. schools. There you go. Right. Uh, <laughs> and one of that was UCSF. University of California, San Francisco, fabulous school. Mm. But as the name implies, it's mm -hmm. in San Francisco, which is a great city. Love the city. I called my mom and I said, mom, 
I'm trying to decide between going to Harvard Medical School and going to UCSF. And my mother says, you see what? Now, nothing <laughs> against UCSF. Right, right. A great I, school. I get it. But my mother says, why would you do that? You're ready at Harvard. I've never, my mother, again, never, not no college, no med school. I've never heard of UCSF. Again, nothing against UCSF. Audience, great, fabulous great school. school. Why would you do that? Well, you know what? I am a bit of a maverick. I am a bit of a, a risk taker. I am a bit audacious. But when my mother says something, I listen. That's mentorship right there. Yeah. I love it. And, you know, to your point, right? Like, this is it. One, this is your story. <laughs> so that's your journey. Two, right? This isn't, you know, shade on any other school or any other place. But those things do matter, right? Like, and they matter at specific points and junctures in our lives, right? One, the voice of well, sometimes our biggest mentors, right? Our parents, our mother, our father, in this case for you, your mother. And if like, if she's like, you see what? It's like, okay, that might be enough to say like, maybe I need to consider something else. And it sounds like you did. And you already <laughs> knew the lay of the land at Harvard College. And so being able to continue there would make sense. So I'm assuming, is that what you did then to go into Harvard Medical School? It's what I did. Because, you know, like you said, you're a maverick. You could have like, all right, I heard you, mom. You could have pivoted, but you did. <laughs> I could have, but I didn't. And uh, go yeah. ahead. And so a very brief comment about Harvard College. You know, Harvard College just announced, you know, a couple of weeks ago, its first African-American female president, Claudine wow. Gay. Fabulous. Harvard, you know, I'm sorry, Harvard University, right? Big F deal. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. But even when I was back in college, I graduated from college in 87, it was my recollection and not a whole bunch of made up fantasy memories. I remember it being a very idyllic place. I had great relationships, diverse people, diverse, you know, experiences, great educational opportunity. Again, I'm not advertising for Harvard, just for my that was your experience. experience. Yeah. My experience. I fenced in nice. college. I had just wonderful experiences. And then it got me to the next echelon of my professional development, Harvard Medical School. At Harvard Medical School, it, it was going through a transition in medical schools in terms of, you know, medical school curriculums change every once in a while. Harvard Medical School decided to go from a traditional curriculum to what they called then because they didn't have a name yet, the new pathway. Basically, it's it went to a case-based approach to medical education, at least for the first two years. So instead of a traditional year of anatomy, for example, in your first year, it was much more, here's a case of a patient with a disease, and we will center your learning of anatomy around a series of cases, and we will have you have a conceptual framework of what anatomy is, because we can't possibly have you learn every one of the 206 bones and its muscular assertions. But if we teach you, quote unquote, how to critically think, mm -hmm. and when you're in the situation of being an orthopedic surgeon or a trauma surgeon or a neurosurgeon, 
or an internist, you will situationally learn the anatomy that you need to know. That's the overall premise. At least that's what I was surmising in my first year of medical school. And because of being a maverick, I said, well, that's not exactly what I signed up for. I want the traditional approach. <laughs> but maybe I should transfer to Hopkins. It was a little bit more complicated by then. Yeah. Something like that. But I stuck it out. And I, you know, I think I turned out okay. And I uh, think you did too. <laughs> but in my second year, we had these tutorials, you know, small group uh, sessions with uh, a professor, assistant associate professor in various disciplines. So in the neuro, in the neuropsychiatry, neurosurgery block, I think it was called the mind block, something like that. You went over neurosurgery, you went over neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, and psychiatry. And so my block was a psychiatrist. In that room, you know, you have to kind of work together in a group, right? And because, you know, medicine is not an individual sport, it's a team sport, you know, nurses, yeah. physician assistants, you know, social work. I mean, it's a team sport, it's yeah. everybody. It's not just one person making a decision, all of a sudden, boom, ha stuff happens. So that's kind of what they were trying to acculturate you to, you know, taking care of people. It's a team activity. It's not an individualist activity, which is an antithesis to what college is to get into medical school, right? Yeah, yeah. You are by yourself studying organic chemistry. You're by yourself studying physics. You may have like group things, but at the end of the day, you're not taking a group test. You're right. taking it's out. on you. Yeah. It's on you test. So I'm doing the tutorial thing and I'm highly introverted and it just is not clicking for me, right? Because I'm like, and because I'm surrounded by Again, these are all very smart people, and I'm smart too, but I'm not jumping on the table to get people's attention. That ain't, my, that ain't me. So the professor, midway or three-quarters away, pulls me aside and says, Selwyn, I've been watching you. Of course I know you've been watching me, and you're going to be a surgeon. The furthest thing from my mind. Wow. But because he said it, it stuck in my head. So here I am now in my third year. For those in the audience who don't know the way it's structured, your first two years of more or less book learning, a lot of book learning. Then you got to take a test before you go on to the next phase, which is a clinical learning, which is what we call the wards or the clerkships. So in the clerkships, you basically do between four and eight week blocks of time in each of the main specialties. For example, my journey eight weeks of medicine, which is what I thought I wanted to do. Medicine encompassing internal medicine, family medicine, medical subspecialties. It's the most traditional sense of what I had in my mind that doctors did from Marcus Welby to Quincy. And some of the audience will say, who the heck are those people? So Quincy M.E. was a pathologist. Jack Klugman would figure things out. You know, Eureka, that's what that's what he died of. Well, Eureka, that's what this case was. Quincy, great show. Or Mark Swelby, which probably you have to be over 40 to know what Mark Swelby was. Now, James, you know Mark Swelby? Actually, I do not. There you go. So, you know, look it up, YouTube. Here's what's fascinating to me about that. And I'll go quick. Rotations, medicine, mm -hmm. too slow. Radiology, rooms too dark, fell asleep. OB, nothing against it. Have three kids, too many women. Pediatrics, nothing against it. Too many children. Uh, pathology, interesting. They're all dead. I yeah. can't do that. Where's the human interaction? At least mm -hmm. as you go through, you start trying these things on. 
Yeah. And you say to yourself, what's the fit? That's not the fit for me. Mm -hmm. So surgery was my last rotation. And I had never thought about it before, except this Mm -hmm. bizarre second year (laughs) thing with a psychiatrist telling me I'm going to be a surgeon. And I loved it. But I thought it was insane. Because back then, the medical students shadowed the interns. And the intern schedules, again, at that time, was every other night call, which means you got in the hospital early in the morning, you spent the whole night, you left the next day, and then you came back and you did it again. And then you did it again. And when you're not used to that, you said, these people are crazy, except for one fact. What if you loved every minute of it? (laughs) Which is what I did. I love every minute of it. I love the anatomy. I love the physiology. I love the pathophysiology. I love the patients. I love the problems. I love the solutions to the problems. And even though I was not that kid growing up, taking apart dad's car or taking apart my toy train and putting it back Mm -hmm. together, even though I wasn't, quote unquote, technically gifted with my hands growing up. I didn't do woodwork and all that stuff. I was in my brain most of the time. I love the ability to use your mind, your hands, and your heart to help others. It hooked me. Mentorship again. I got people who put their arms around me as a 6'3 black guy in a space where there weren't many black guys who say, Selwyn, you could do this. And I did. And so I want to actually highlight that. One, I love the journey and I appreciate you explaining it and that someone saw something in you and said it. And, you know, I know some surgeons and I've been around other medical doctors, but I think this is the first time like I've heard someone really describe being a surgeon in that way, right? That it, this combination of both brains, being able to use your hands and heart. And maybe this is my own bias and stereotype. I think I probably would have heard like, you know, the intellect and the physical ability, but not the integration of the heart, right? Like, obviously, like people have to care. (laughs) They they are human beings, but there's a the stigma, maybe a stereotype of a surgeon almost kind of having to be robotic in their precision, in their how they approach it. And obviously, you know, there's more to it than that. And so I, I really appreciate that you really teased out these different things that landed for you and felt like a a really a good fit. What I'm curious also about is like, as you're saying in this journey, coming from St. Thomas all the way to Harvard and in, you know, a little stint with Johns Hopkins as a black man going through all of this, like I can imagine like there's some great moments and some challenging moments and in the field where one, probably there's more numbers now, but probably at that point, There wasn't that many black men, I would assume, maybe at Harvard College, maybe not that many black men at Harvard Medical College. And then now you're talking about your specialties and subspecialties. I would assume the numbers probably continued to dwindle. So what was that like for you in that journey? It's a great question. I mentioned my idyllic recollection of college. First year of medical school, one of the things that the new curriculum forced is that it forced you to actually touch another human being that you weren't related to or dating, which is actually a kind of 
strange experience, right? So you walk up to someone that you've never met before and you call yourself medical student one. And I'm here to examine, I'm here to take a history, talk to you, and I'm ask you questions in a semi-structured way. And then I'm going to lift up your gown and examine you and synthesize that, walk away, and then present that history and physical. Wow. It was probably the most scary thing because what you're thinking going through your head is all of this stuff, right? You have you have a script, but humans don't follow scripts. And I'm doing one of my first such history and physicals on a patient. And basically the way it worked, and it was a time when patients would stay in the hospital for a long time after anything, right? So be it surgery or heart attack, you know, there's a lot of convalescence in the hospital. It doesn't really happen that way anymore. Most of your convalescence happens either at home or a rehabilitation center or a nursing home, whatever the thing is, right? There's a lot of transitions of care. But back then, people would be in the hospital for a while. And if you're in the hospital for a while, you get bored. There's only so many books you can read. And this is, again, before social media and, and smartphones. And you can only watch so much daytime TV, I think. Mm-hmm. So some patients, and basically all these patients were out volunteered, right? They're, no one was told. As a teaching hospital, you have to do this. They got recruited and they didn't get paid. But for some of them, they loved the idea that they were part of teaching. Yeah. They loved that idea. Or for some, it was probably, this is just a way to break up the day, the monotony. Yeah. Change right? of pace. All that. So I go into this white male patient room. He's probably, you know, my memory is not a, that good because I'll be honest, it was a traumatizing experience. I'm trying to figure out my place with a short white coat on, my name on my lapel, HMS, Harvard Medical School student. And I walk in the room and the guy, patient, lying in bed, relatively powerless, right? Because he's lying in bed. I'm not. I'm walking into the room. And white coat on, name on my white coat. He doesn't say Selwyn. That's an interesting name. He doesn't say Selwyn Rogers. He doesn't say, who are you? He says, are you here for my tray? You you have all the thing, everything else saying why you should. There there was a tray of partially eaten food on the stand. Are you here for my tray? I said, no, I'm the medical student. And his response is, I am not having any N examine Mm. me. Get out of here. Now, get to the power of mentorship. I sheepishly walk out the room and I say, I'm going to fail medical school because I can't even get a therapeutic alliance with this human being to do what I got told I have to do. And now I have to present nothing. I got nothing. I don't have a history. I don't have a physical. And I got to tell my preceptor, I failed. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. My preceptor, internal medicine, I don't remember his name, but you know, and he's probably not listening to this podcast. I don't know where he is now because this is 1991. He says, when I tell him what happened, he sits the group of four of us down. And this is a white male. Probably at this point, he's in his 40s, mid-40s. He says, let me teach you all about racism. Wow. This is what racism looks like. It was a very powerful experience for me because yeah. I'm thinking to myself, what does this white man know about racism? He knowed 
he knew enough to recognize. Yeah. And that was advocating. It was validating to me. And, you know, I think that's where the conversation around race or injustice, and this could be in any, in my opinion, ism, sexism, homophobism, whatever it might be, where whatever injustice that's happening, that sometimes we need someone who can name it, especially someone that might be in a position, position of power or influence. Because, you know, when you say that you were, you left feeling I'm going to fail out because I can't even get this person to allow me to examine them. Well, no, this person is being racist and that's not your fault. But when you don't have someone to say that to you or to translate the situation, or even if you knew like, this is just, here we go, some racist nonsense, but yet they could still say, but Selwyn, you still got to get the, the results. And so for that person to take that time, and it sounds like it wasn't just like, hey, Selwyn, let me talk to you. Let, no, let me talk to your colleagues and bring everybody into this conversation because because you will have to know because maybe you need to do that for somebody else down the road or to connect with someone. hundred. It was, again, it was 35? How many years ago was that? 19 plus 20, 39, 30, well, no, 35. I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Three plus yeah. decades ago. And I still remember it like yesterday. The other thing I would say for me, choosing surgery, I had a couple interesting positive experiences. So when I was a fourth year considering a career in surgery, there were two there were two black males, African American males, who were chief residents, Lint Johnson and Ed Barksdale at the same time at Mass General Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital. The thing that was amazing about that is that it was the first time that not one, but two African-American Black male chief residents were at the Mass General Hospital. It was so much of unicorn that it was a story in the Boston Globe. And that's what I was looking at when I was thinking about a career in surgery. And for me, it was the first time that I actually saw what I wanted to be in someone that looked like me. It was the first time. And so I made a, I made all these leaps up until this time, not having any mentors wow. that look like me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the face of excellence is black, male, <laughs> in America. Wow. And I can imagine that's an incredible feeling, right? And I've had some of those experiences and it wasn't sometimes to your point, my mentors, which I'm so grateful for, have been white or white men or white women, right? And it was only until like sometimes further in my career that I was able to have, you know, relationships with like a black man that I can gain and glean information and wisdom from, which I would assume because this has been for me which has made it that much more important for me to make sure that I'm doing that for other people. Truth, 100, all of that, and a bag of Frito-Lays. One of the things that for me, you know, and we can go on for hours, but so when I came to the Brigham Women's Hospital, a place that I joke when I was leaving the Brigham after a great run, I joked, I bleed 
friggin' blue. You don't bleed. Everyone knows you don't bleed, bleed blue. Your blood's red when it gets right. oxidized by oxygen. But I was so into matching at the Brigham Women's Hospital that back in the day when I had hair, I carved BWH or I had my barber carve BWH in the back of my head just because it was a form of branding, but I could shave it off. So it wasn't permanent. Right. And I don't have any tattoos. My kids have tattoos, but I don't. But here's the thing. I was in the 100 plus year history of the Brigham Women's Hospital. I was the fourth, fourth African-American male with no African-American females. I was the fourth resident at the Brigham in the 100 year history of the esteemed eminent place in the surgery training program. The prior three, their pedigree, Harvard College, Harvard Medical School. So when I finished training and stayed on at the program, I said that cannot be the standard because the last time I checked, everybody else, everybody else was not Harvard College, Harvard Medical School. That is called monopoly. That's not the case. People were from all over the country. The Brigham is a national, international place. So let's look at our values. And if we truly think diversity is a value that we not just espouse mm -hmm. in words, but in our mm -hmm. actions, let's look critically at the pool of people that apply. And if the pool is not diverse, let's make it diverse. But again, it is about excellence. So let's pick the best. Yeah. And you know what? Oftentimes the best is not simply white male. <laughs> like that's an epiphany, right? <laughs> you know, and but it does take the work to look at it, right? Like to to move outside of the scope of where we are or what might be easy. You know, maybe the best might come from my HBCU. Maybe it might come from a different part of the country. Maybe it might come from, you know, an island. <laughs> maybe the best is going to come from someplace else. And I really appreciate you sharing that. So I want to move to this place as we wrap up. Can you share more of where you are now? Like you've been there and done that and went back and did it again. You've been able to do amazing things in your career. So can you share a bit of where you are now? And then I'll go into, you know, my last few questions that I have. Sure. So the journey, I have followed my heart. I've followed my mind, probably defined by one word, impact. So at every one of the places I've been and I've been on a few, none of the quote unquote moves have been frivolous. Where I am now, I am serving as the founding director of the University of Chicago Medicine Trauma Center here in the south side of Chicago. That's where I'm sitting at the moment. I am the James Bowman Jr. MD, professor of surgery at the University of Chicago Medicine. James Bowman is a luminary. He was the first African-American full professor in medicine at the University wow. of Chicago. So it's a privilege that had to be an endowed professor with his linked to him. And I serve as the executive vice president of community health, meaning I'm engaged in activities to try to address some of the most stark healthcare disparities in these United States of America with life expectancy gap nearing 30 years between the place across the street, Washington Park, where I sit now, mostly black and brown communities to what many people think of Chicago, which is the downtown skyline 
with skyscrapers and the bean you know anyone doesn't know the bean look it up bean chicago uh, it's an iconic place where people go and get take their pictures long story short the life expectancy gap between those two places depending on your zip code can be as much as 30 years and that doesn't say anything about the quality of life that just says i'm sorry doesn't say anything about the quality of life that just says about the quantity now when you talk about quality that even gets more yeah. dire because are you living your best self if you're living with one leg blind on dialysis yeah versus aging in place well walking two miles a day in a safe neighborhood with mm -hmm. your dog mm -hmm. and assuming you like dogs and saying to yourself, today is a good day, quoting us Q. So it's so challenging yeah. to see yeah. these issues. Here I sit now, and one of the big jarring things I deal with is the fact that as the founding director of the trauma center here at the University of Chicago Medicine, 40, 40%, 40%. Four out of 10 reasons that someone comes to the trauma center here is because they've been shot yeah. by a firearm. Sometimes an AK-47. On January 1st of this year, there was a 17, a 14, 15, and a 15-year-old boys. Last time I checked, if you're 17, 15, 14, yeah. You know, I would say if you're 26 and less, you're still a boy because you're evolving into a man. I have my sons at 27. 23, about to be 24 next month, and 20. To me, they're my boys. They'll always be my boys. My oldest son calls me Pops, lovingly. But when he first called me Pops when he was 14, I thought I was going to take him out because I'm not Pops. I'm your father. Right. But when he calls me Pops now, I smile because it warms my heart because it says, I love you, Pops. Having said all of that, all of these issues are due to 400 years legacy of slavery, yeah. structural violence, redlining, disinvestment in communities, and longstanding racism. And when you're fighting that battle, you have to have a passion purpose because that is not an operation. That's not a beginning, a middle, yeah. and an end. That's a journey. Yeah. And I think that's where the, the heart part comes out even more. Right, caring for people and the impact and looking at it, you know, like it was, I know that you have your MPH and my wife has her MPH and her doctorate in public health. And that's where I really, over the years, learned so much about these disparities, about food deserts, about uh, the quality, how it is zip code, which literally could maybe be five minutes, 10 minutes apart, could have such a huge disparity in quality and quantity of life. And so the fact that you've taken all these skills and taken excellence and taken your blackness even to then say, I want to make a difference in a place that is unfortunately riddled with trauma. Chicago is not that different, unfortunately, to some of the things that I experience here in Philly around trauma. And one of the things from the mental health side that I've seen is so many people are traumatized they get taken care of physically, but then they're not really addressed mentally. And there's a lot of stuff that happens with that. 
So as we're winding down, this this whole part is a whole nother conversation we could have. <laughs> There's so much more to this. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate your highlighting mm-hmm. and talking about it. And I want to just honor that this is the this part of what we're talking about is a full series. And we're not we cannot give it enough justice in this time. And so with that, I'm wondering a few things. If you could work with or collaborate with anyone, who would it be? Alive or dead? Is this a hypothetical or is this a... Well, let's say alive. And then maybe if we want to throw in, you know, someone who's passed after. Any single person or an organization? It could be, yeah, it could either one. So recognizing that a lot of the issues, educational disparities, healthcare disparities, disparities in general, are driven by income inequality. And if you don't have health, you don't have wealth. And I don't talk about money. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. the wealth of spirit, the wealth of possibility, the wealth of having audacity, right? If you Mm -hmm. can't imagine where your next meal is coming from, how can you be hopeful for a better tomorrow? I would say, irrespective of politics, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos, because their accumulated wealth, and I'm not talking about taking it away. I'm talking about investing and maximizing the human potential of children. Because that's where it starts. Something got germinated in me as a child early on. And the fruits of that is the mind that you hear. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's a way that if we were to use our collective influence, finances, brain power, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things we could eradicate. And, oh. and to be clear, Dr. James, it's not about income redistribution. It's yes. about how to use, you know, you would talk about talent, treasure, mm-hmm. you know, part of the most powerful thing ain't money. It's the power of will, ideas, and execution. Yeah. Yeah. All the way. I love that. And, and you know, and especially when we put those folks and then we put you Oh, man, we could accomplish anything because then, you know, all that brain power, it would be great. Last two questions I like to ask is what does mental wellness mean for you? So as someone who has struggled personally with depression, I have a lot of my plate, both personally and professionally, all the time. I have had losses. A grandmother that I talked about earlier, I lost her during my first year of residency. I've had losses. I'm divorced, three wonderful boys, strong relationship with them, but that has not been without bumps in the road and failure and so many things, but we're we're good. We're in a great space and the journey continues. As you can imagine, 27 male, 23 about to be 24 male, 20 male, it ain't a straight line and the journey continues. Speaking of loss, when I lose a patient, Um, And here in Chicago, I lose many patients to the ravages of firearm-related injuries. That takes a toll. So the mental health, wealth, wellness piece of this 
uh, weighs heavily on me. Having said that, I'm surrounded by great relationships, loving wife, wonderful children, great colleagues, friends that go back to college. And a good friend of mine, 84-year-old, moderate Republican, white male, who we were together in Haiti together in 2010 after the devastating earthquake there, humanitarian work. He just texted me, hey, give me a call, which I will after this call. The power of that is incredible. Yeah. Five o'clock in the morning, buddy of mine in the city of Philadelphia, he and I were chatting about uh, some challenges that we're both facing with our children. That collective family of origin, family of choice, spurs us forward when we come across bumps in the road, losses, which is part of life. Yeah. And the journey is A, not a straight line, B, has peaks and valleys, but a combination of faith, sometimes therapy, sometimes medications, but a holistic way. Because we don't allow ourselves to walk around with a broken femur and say we're okay. That's right. But we allow ourselves to walk around with a broken mind and pretend we're okay. Yeah. No, all of that. And I really appreciate your ability to highlight life, right? As you've been super successful and have mentored and been mentored, that there's also challenges, ups and downs, difficulties, losses. And that with that, you've found ways for your mental wellness, for your peace, for your joy along the way. Last question, what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be as early as yesterday or any time in the past. I think the advice I would give my younger self, which would be yesterday, it would have been, although I'm better yesterday than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I would say... Until probably mid-20s, I didn't know who Selwyn Rogers was, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to spend time and figuring out who you are. That's key around mental wellness. Because a lot of times when you have conflict internally, you can't run away from yourself. So Mm -hmm. you got to figure out who are you. That's one. What are your values? What motivates you? What doesn't motivate you? That's important because if you don't have a self-identity, how can you aspire to be your best self? The other, which I think is a more recent revelation to me, and I can't tell you, I can't pinpoint it. I will say that my approach to life is one in which I self-assess, is today a good day or is today not a good day? And I aspire for tomorrow to be a better day. That's right. And that better day is not about accumulating wealth or stuff. It's acquiring relationships that matter and affecting the lives of others that matter to me. That is my definition of having a good day. My more recent revelation, which is probably in the past... Two days, this is my new revelation. I'm living faithfully my best life. Yeah. I love it. I love it all. And I love how you're really also sharing that 
this is an evolution for you, right? That these revelations could be as as recent as two days ago and that you are constantly working on it and thinking about it. And it sounds like giving yourself space to be, right? That it's okay that I can have a bad day today. I can have a good day today, but I can aspire to have a better day tomorrow. And I think that's great that the way that you are talking about it. Dr. Rogers, I so appreciate you being on the podcast and you sharing your story and your journey. I hear your heart for mentorship, your heart for changing the dynamics of what we think about when we come to excellence, and that there is more than enough room for more Black professionals and Black people to not only be in these fields, but also to be cared for and to be given resources so that there are not so many disparities. And so thank you so much. And before we we end, any last thoughts that you want to share before we wrap? My last thoughts is think of life as not a straight line. It's a journey. Embrace the journey, both the good things and the bad things. And I often think, not that I'm a, um, I, I forge uh, steel, but the way you make steel stronger is you heat it up. Yeah. And when you have adversity in life, if you embrace it as this is just part of me annealing the steel. That's how you get stronger. It's not by having a straight line, success after success. It's the heat yeah. and the cooling and the heating up again and the cooling that makes you stronger. I love it. Thanks so much once again. I wish you continued success in all that you're doing, both personally and professionally, and your heart and mission and passion to impact so many lives, both in the field of medicine and surgery and trauma, but also people who are living day-to-day lives who want their quality and quantity to be better. So thanks again for joining on Leapcast. Thank you very much, Jonathan James. Wow, what an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the Leapcast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating, and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.